Welcome to our sermon podcast here at City of Light Anglican Church. We are a new church in Aurora, Illinois, finding a new day in Jesus. We want to see the light of Jesus rise and shine in our hearts, in our homes, and in our neighborhoods. Thanks for joining us for today's message. Good morning, I'm Pastor Bonnie, and I'm just so excited to share God's word with you today. Um, As Trevor and I and all of us here have been asking the Lord, Lord, what does it look like to grow and flourish for the sake of others? He has been bringing these three words forward. Pray, party, partner. So last week we looked at what it means to pray, what it means to ask before we act, And this is week three of us dreaming together for this next year in the Lord. I'm personally really pleased that I got the most fun word, which is party. Um, No, I'm really excited about all of these words. And I'm really eager to hear from the Lord this morning. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, teach us from your word and show us what it means to enter a life of festival and feasting. As we ask you to grow and flourish us, not only for our own sake, but for the sake of others. Amen. When I was seven years old, I had the ultimate birthday party. I mean, like not to brag too much, but the kind of party that kids were talking about for months and months afterwards. Um, But really all the credit goes to my parents because they didn't want to leave anyone out, so they invited my entire elementary school class, which in total was like 30 girls and boys, plus my three younger brothers. Needless to say, it was a complete zoo. And even, like, talking about it now as a parent gives me a lot of anxiety. Uh, But the good thing about the party was that we did spend most of the time outside in my backyard. I have a July birthday, summer birthday, so outside. And for weeks before the party, my dad let the grass grow in our yard really, really high. And then the morning of the party, he took out the riding lawnmower and he carved paths in the grass. And then he created this elaborate game where... Us kids had to stay on the path and run away from him, and he was like a monster of some kind. I don't, I don't know. I mean, there were a lot of rules, and the details are kind of hazy right now, but I do remember that it was a hit. It was super fun. And then my mom made enough food for this party for, you know, the residents of the state of Delaware. Like, it was just a ton of food, and so we were all amped up on sugar and adrenaline. It was the best. Uh, my parents knew how to throw a party. And as we ran around the yard with red Kool-Aid on our faces and we were sweating and we were laughing in the July sun, I have this distinct memory of thinking, it doesn't get any better than this. And I was kind of right for the most part. (laughs) Here's the thing, though. Whether we're kids and we're running around without a care in the world, or were adults running from problems that seem a lot bigger? The truth is this. We were all created for parties. 
We were created for the feast. We were created to celebrate because we were created for heaven, where the ultimate party, the wedding feast of the Lamb, will never end. When I was doing research for this sermon, I just happened to Google parties in the Bible, hoping to find some really awesome examples of feasting. But the entire first page of my results were links with titles like, Should Christians Go to Parties? What does the Bible say about partying? What does the Bible say about clubbing? It's very, very specific. I don't know. Um, But I couldn't find anything on why Christians should party. Uh, Now, of course, in our brokenness, we know that we can throw parties for the wrong reasons and we can feast on the wrong things, right? We can use parties to distract and numb ourselves and to become absent rather than to be present to God and to one another. Because of this reality, our world, which is so fractured and fragmented, needs holy feasting to connect us to God and to one another. We all hunger for meals of abundance in the deserts of our scarcity. We need to learn how to be filled and satisfied first and foremost with the presence of Jesus and then to help others enter into that heavenly party life. And like any good party, with the best food and the best conversation, the party of heaven takes place around a table. So as we walk through these scriptures this morning, I want to look at our calling to party through the lens of Three tables. Think of this as a progressive dinner party. And if you're the type of person who likes to write things down or um, draw, this could be a great chance for you to kind of um, focus in on what we're going to talk about. Um, The three tables I want to talk about are God's table, our household table, and our neighbor's table. Each of these tables has a host and a guest list, and it all starts at God's table. Here, Jesus is the host, and we are the guests. Let's look together at that Nehemiah 8 passage, kind of an obscure book of the Bible, so good luck finding it. Uh, But if you want, there are Bibles Um, on seats, and it's on page 623, I believe, of those Bibles. This is a great case study for what it means to come to God's table. So all God's people are gathered together, and Ezra, the prophet, opens the book of Moses, which is God's word, God's law for them. And they're wrapped with attention, with attention and In the the message version of the Bible, it says, every ear and eye were on him, Ezra. And because of the beauty and holiness of the Lord, and also because of their uh, being filled with grief for the ways that they hadn't measured up to the holiness of the Lord, the people just begin weeping. They're completely wrecked by hearing the word of the Lord. But instead of letting the people wallow in their sorrow, Ezra tells them, 
No, no, that, that's not it. Don't weep. Go home and prepare a feast, holiday food and drink, and share it with those who don't have anything. This day is holy to God, so don't feel bad. The joy of God is your strength. See, at God's table, he removes our shame and he gives us joy. Beauty for ashes. The host of this party, Jesus says, here, I'm going to take that shame and that guilt and that sorrow that you're carrying, and I'm actually going to carry that now. Our hands become empty. And I mean, what kind of party guest shows up to a party empty-handed? But in the kingdom of God, coming empty-handed is actually the only way we can arrive. And then what does Jesus, our host, do? He hands us a plate overflowing with food, and he puts a drink in our hand, and he puts a party hat on us, a crown on our heads that were once cast down in our own guilt and our own sorrow. And so our heads can now be lifted to enter into the festival life. That's what it means to come to God's table every single week. And we don't come alone either. The party is for each of us, and the party is for all of us. This is communion with God and with one another, our fellow party guests. This is Eucharist. Now, if you've been walking with us for a little while, you've probably heard that word Eucharist before, or maybe you've never heard it before. Eucharist is a word that just means giving thanks. Jesus used the word in the Bible. It's a Bible word. He used it several times when he broke bread and he thanked God for providing. When we use this word, we think of it kind of in two different ways. So we think of it broadly, asking the question, what does it mean to live a Eucharistic life, a giving thanks life? How do we live like Jesus lifting up what we've been given to the Lord and then thanking him for his goodness. But we also mean something really specific and tangible too because the action of Eucharist is about coming to this table in this place, this gym, with these people to give thanks to Jesus for what he's done through his cross and resurrection. Every Sunday when we worship, and have our family meal at the table. We enter into Christ's victory party on Easter. See, the church has always seen every Sunday as a little Easter, a resurrection feast with Jesus as the host. And because of this Easter reality, Eucharist is not first and foremost about weeping over our sins like in the Nehemiah passage. Now, there's an important time and place for confession in the Christian life, and that's why we do it every Sunday before we come to the table, and then we do it more intentionally in certain church seasons, like in Lent, which we'll walk through in a few weeks. But Eucharist is first and foremost festival, and God's house is first a banquet hall. Or, 
if it's helpful, we can think of Eucharist the way that our city kids talk about it, which is a Jesus party in our tummies, which I love. The rhythm of Eucharist teaches us that even in the seasons of fallow in our lives, when we don't feel like we're feasting, when we feel like we're actually starving, when the fields lay bare in our souls, that God is still on the move. God is still present with us. God is still, he's still victorious, and he will be victorious this Easter and every Easter and forever. This Eucharistic rhythm, this giving thanks life at God's table teaches us how to not only see Jesus's presence with us throughout the rest of the week, but it actually teaches us how to bring his presence into our homes. At the end of the service, every week we say, go forth into the world in peace, rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Why do we say that? It's not just because the church made it up because they're like, oh, we need something to say at the end of the service, like kind of bring some closure, what would be good? And no, it's not just this afterthought that the church came up with. It's actually our calling to each of us to now become the host around the second table we're going to talk about, which is our household table. Tish Harrison Warren, who is an Anglican pastor and writer, says, in this alternative economy of the true bread of life, she's talking about Eucharist, we are turned inside out so that we are no longer people marked by scarcity, jockeying for our own good, but are new people, truly nourished and therefore able to extend nourishment to others. The economy of the Eucharist is true abundance. There is enough for me, not in spite of others, but because we receive Christ together as a community. See, we're called to extend this nourishment that we've received to others, just like Jesus is extending his table into our homes. Um, when Trevor and I were first married, we went and we bought our first dining table. So obviously we went to Ikea. Um, we like to joke that Ikea is where marriages go to die. But um, somehow our, our marriage survived that trip, and it has survived many other Ikea trips since then. Uh, but we bought this table that seated four people. I think it was called the Jockmock. Is that right? Yeah. Some Swedish name. Um, but we soon realized that that table wasn't big enough for all the people we wanted to have over. So a couple years later, we went to a thrift store and we bought this like battered old wood table for like $50. And the best part about this table was that it had three leaves that we could put in so that when we had a lot of people over, we could throw in the leaves, extend the table, and seat 12 people around that table. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's putting in the leaves of his communion table, extending it into our homes. It's not a separate table. It's his table because his presence goes with us. And he's telling us, hey, now you're the host. My presence goes with you. We're filled with Jesus in worship at his table by his word so that we can then bring Jesus into our homes and into our neighborhoods. 
And listen, okay, I, I used to be an editor, and it's a personal pet peeve of mine that people use the word literally in the most inappropriate situations or just use it all the time. But when I say this, I truly mean we literally bring Jesus with us. Christ in us, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. He's in us. We literally bring him. Um, let's take a look at our Luke passage, Luke 14. And in the seat Bibles, I believe that's on page 1324. Jesus is sitting at a dinner party with a bunch of respectable people. And he says, when you give a luncheon or dinner, I love that because it's Jesus saying, I'm assuming you will be doing this. (laughs) So he's telling us when you do it, it's just part of the rhythm of the Christian life. He says, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I grew up as a pastor's kid in rural, uh, a rural Minnesota church, small church. Having the pastor's family over for Sunday dinner, which was really Sunday lunch, was just part of the cultural custom. So many Sundays, my family would head over to the Finnefrock's house. Um, Nancy and Leon Finnefrock had this huge house on just acres and acres of land. And Nancy and Leon were this by all accounts, a really humble and homespun couple. But they had an incredible calling. Over the course of their lives, Nancy and Leon welcomed over 100 foster boys into their home. These were all um, teenage boys. These boys were, as my dad put it, easily considered the dregs of society the leftovers that nobody else wanted. They often had mothers with alcohol and drug problems, or they had learning disorders or developmental issues. Some of them exhibited violent behavior or gang activity. But in Nancy and Leon, these boys found a home. So every Sunday, about 20 of us gathered around the Finnefrock's long, long table, the pastor's family, mingled with these foster boys. I think that that picture is exactly what Jesus is talking about in this Luke passage. Invite those who cannot invite you back, he says. Invite those who cannot repay you. Invite those who drain you emotionally. Invite those who speak a different language so that your conversation is filled with a lot of awkward pauses and nervous laughter and pointing at stuff to try to communicate with them, with each other. Invite those who aren't movers or shakers and don't have your ideals and make you uncomfortable because you're pretty sure that they voted for that other person, and you're pretty sure because they're super vocal about it. 
Invite those who are loose cannons, who might say something inappropriate during dinner, and you're going to have to sit your kids down after they leave to explain why they said it and what that means. Invite those who will not appreciate the locally sourced arugula, goat cheese, and prosciutto tart that you usually make when your friends, people like you, come over. Invite families whose kids will make a mess. Invite single or celibate people. Invite those whom you desperately, desperately want to see here on a Sunday morning. Invite those who may never step foot inside these doors, but who you're always praying will. Invite, invite, invite. When you do it, which you should and you will, if you're my followers, Jesus is saying, do it like this. I love the similarities between our Nehemiah and our Luke passages this morning. In Nehemiah, Ezra says, go prepare food and drink for a party and share with those who do not have any. So the people went off to feast, eating and drinking and including the poor in a great celebration. City of Light. I want us to be a Nehemiah 8 church. Don't you want that? Don't you want to experience the presence of the Lord so richly and fully here so that it spills over into this huge party that cannot be contained to just those of us sitting here in this room, but it tumbles out of this room and out of this building and into, our street, into the streets and into our homes, don't you see our cultures crippled, poor, lame, and blind who desperately need the joy of the Lord and who can find it at our tables and at God's table? Here's how author David Fitch talks about this concept of God extending his table into our homes. People everywhere long to be known. Our culture bears the signs of people wanting to share their life meaningfully with one another. The world longs for Eucharist. We want to be a church of scrappy, just do it, hospitality. Hospitality that's all plastic forks and cheap crockpot soups that will stretch to feed dozens and dozens of people. Hospitality that nourishes bodies and souls. Hospitality that's not about performance, but it's about presence. We come around our household tables and we preside as priests, as pastors, with a parish, a neighborhood. Each one of our households is a little church. Each one of our meals is a little Eucharist where the presence of Jesus dwells. And City of Light, I just love the ways that I'm already seeing you do this. I see it when you pack your home full uh, for a soup night for your neighbors or you invite your refugee neighbors to our backyard kids camp and they actually come or you bring those on the fringes here at church, maybe people who are new or haven't yet gotten connected, you bring them into your home, or you bring them to Jalisco's for tacos, 
both are great. Or you bring them to the parish house for the Taco Tuesdays that we had all last summer. I know so many of you have open hearts and open doors. You live the life of festival, even and often in the midst of your own incredible pain. Do not grow weary in doing good. Your work is not in vain. Jesus promises you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So the party of heaven teaches us how to receive from Jesus as our host at God's table. How to be hosts at our neighborhood, at our household table, excuse me. And then how to become guests at our neighbor's table. And the reason we first have to receive at God's table before we're able to be present at the other two tables is because of what we talked about earlier. We come to Eucharist as beggars, and he fills us. Eucharist teaches us that actually, first, we are the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind that Jesus is talking about. That's why we need communion every single week. And uh, listen, okay, I'm a, I'm a parent. I know how hard it is to get to church sometimes. Believe me, I could tell you many stories. Um, it can be really hard to get to church when you have kids. Not even that, it can be hard to get to church when the weather is bad or you feel lonely and you're not going to have anyone to sit with or you just can't get out of bed. Sometimes you look at the clock and you're like, well, the service just started. Can I still go? Can I go in my pajamas? Can I go if my kids look like they dress themselves in the dark? Can I go if I'm 15 minutes late or 40 minutes late? I know. I get it. This word isn't about shame. This word of communion isn't about our attendance. It's about God's abundance. So let's commit to coming around God's table together every single week as we can and are able, on time or not on time, well-dressed or looking like a mess, smiling or dancing or exhausted or weeping, not because we should, but because we know that Jesus is here and we need Jesus. It's with that humble posture that we learn to sit at God's table. And it's also how we learn to sit at our neighbor's table. I recently saw a statistic from the organization We Welcome Refugees that 85% of immigrants have never been inside the home of an American. 85%. We've got some work to do. But I also thought of the question, how many Americans have never been inside the home of an immigrant? Now, to be fair, I think that maybe some Americans and some of us Christians have been inside the home of an immigrant family to give something. We step through their door and into their lives and we help them uh, fill out paperwork or bring them a meal or take their kids to the doctor or whatever. But how many times do we sit at our neighbor's table 
not to give something, but to actually receive something real and physical and tangible. To admit, yeah, actually, I could eat. I'm hungry and I need to be fed. To be nourished with the food that they've prepared. To dignify them with filling another person's belly. When we sit at our neighbor's table, they honor us and we honor them. We come just like we come to communion with nothing to offer except the presence of Jesus himself, which is actually everything. As we close, um, think about these three tables that we've walked through on our progressive dinner party. I just want to spend these last few moments dreaming how the Lord might be calling us all to be present at these three tables in this next season. So if you want to keep your eyes open, that's great. If you're the type of person that can't focus or imagine things without closing your eyes, you can close your eyes if that's helpful for you. Let's just imagine together. Imagine if we really believed that the kingdom of heaven is a party that we were created for and hungry for. Imagine if we were truly captured by that goodness of Jesus who takes our shame and prepares a banquet before us, the best food and the best wine. How would this change the ways we party this year? Imagine that every Sunday when we worship, it's a party, not only for us, but on behalf of our neighborhood. Have you ever thought of it that way? Have you ever thought that the first and even the most important thing we can do for this neighborhood, in addition to addressing all the tangible needs, is to actually feast, to worship? to shake the gates of hell with heaven's songs, to intercede on behalf of our city? Now, what if we believed that when we're nourished with the presence of Jesus, we take his presence with us into our homes and we become hosts in the Eucharistic life? What would it look like for you to become a host this year? Who needs to be invited? Who are the people that can't invite you back? What kinds of parties can we throw in our homes and in our backyards this year? Super Bowls coming up? Super Bowl parties? A party for the start of the Olympics? More Easter egg hunts all over this city and Batavia and North Aurora and Naperville and Plainfield and Elgin? How can you invite new people at City of Light over for lunch or dinner to break bread in your home? If you're in a group, how is your group going to throw parties this year? If you're a family, how can you party? If you're a celibate person, how can you party? How can we partner together with others to throw parties if we feel overwhelmed by the concept or our house isn't big enough or we don't live here in Aurora? And at whose table is the Lord calling you to be present this year? Imagine what kinds of parties we can 
grow as a church this year? What if we were the church that was known for throwing really killer parties? How do we eat together as a church more like we did on the Feast of All Saints and we welcome anyone in? We had uh, 400 people show up at our fall festival. How can we make that party bigger and broader this year and bless our neighborhood with the simple gifts of hot dogs, bounce houses, and the presence of Jesus? Imagine an arts camp or a sports camp here at Hill this summer or next summer. Imagine what feasting can do, what parties can do, what the joy of the Lord can do among us and through us. And now, as we come to this table, which someone here at City of Light crafted as part of living his Eucharistic life, we're going to enter into the heavenly feast here and now and forever. Let's end with this vision from the prophet Isaiah and let this capture our imaginations as we come to God's table today. But here on this mountain, God of the angel armies will throw a feast for all the people of the world, a feast of the finest foods, a feast with vintage wines, a feast of seven courses, a feast lavish with gourmet desserts. And here on this mountain, God will banish the pall of doom hanging over all peoples, the shadow of doom darkening all nations. Yes, he'll banish death forever. And God will wipe the tears from every face. He'll remove every sign of disgrace from his people, wherever they are. Yes, God says so. Thanks for listening to this podcast from City of Light Anglican Church. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at cityoflightanglican.org. And now, may the light of Jesus scatter the darkness from before your path.